Hi, welcome to Seattle Mama Doc. This is Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson, and I'm here with Dr. Erin Swanson. Good morning. Good morning. And I'm in Alabama, and this is a big deal for me because I have traveled all over the United States, and this is my 49th state. So the doctors Swanson are here to make a podcast off-site from Seattle and talk a little bit about how clinicians from around the country really have similar goals and similar missions, but also um, these different footprints from Alabama to Seattle might help us um, get some new perspectives. Dr. Swanson, Dr. Aaron Swanson, is an assistant professor uh, and in the Department of Pediatrics and Division of Rehab Medicine at the Children's of Alabama and University of Alabama School of Medicine. I'm here visiting because I'm doing grand rounds today and also taught the residents this morning. And Dr. Swanson's here to join me to talk about concussions. So um, she's passionate about making sure families get up-to-date information and really start to understand how to protect their kids and also make smart choices when they're concerned their child has a concussion. So um, Dr. Swanson, Dr. Aaron Swanson, does research uh, in the rehab department and is really proud of some research that she's presented the last year at the American Academy of Pediatrics meeting around even signs and symptoms of how kids' eyes work and eyes move and really how their balance centers work and move after concussion and how even some kids need a referral to see an eye doctor after a concussion. So we'll get to that. Thanks for joining me. So first and foremost, talk a little bit about what parents should know to identify, like, how does a parent know if their kid has a concussion? Well, I think it has changed a lot in the past couple decades, because I know when I was a kid, I always thought of concussion as you had to lose consciousness, right? You had to black out to get hit in the head. And that's not necessarily the definition of concussion. Yes, if you black out, you had a concussion, but it also can be as simple as something as seeing stars, getting your bell rung, having a headache after a blow to the head, or any time like you get you know knocked down. Um, it can also be if you were dizzy afterwards, confused, things like that. That. Um, is a concussion. So really, so yeah, so I mean, it kind of made, like when you said that, I was thinking like, I wonder if I've been concussed and not known it, right? Yeah. Of course I've seen stars. Of course I've been knocked, you know, in a playground or something and fallen to the ground. So I think, do you think that lots of kids are concussed and sometimes their families don't know about it? For sure. I mean, I know looking back, I definitely had concussions that were not identified as such uh-huh. During the time. Uh-huh. So they, and so talk a little bit about, I mean, you know, we hear so much about concussion at in the NFL level, and we talk so much about concussion in the football space, but let's talk really, you know, for parents of where are the risk areas for kids when it comes to, you know, just to your point, getting knocked, getting a headache after an injury, banging their head and seeing stars, and or going the whole way of losing consciousness or truly blacking out. Where are kids at risk to have that happen in their lives? So like you talked about, definitely sports. So there's high-risk activities. So for girls, it's like soccer, basketball, lacrosse. And okay. boys, we already kind of mentioned football. But yep. also basketball, lacrosse, things like that. Those hockey, are higher. Right? Hockey, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We don't have as much hockey now. I know, I know. <laughs> well, we don't have actually that much. But I'm a Minnesotan. So. I'm from Wisconsin. We have hockey up yeah, there. Yeah. Not as much down here. Yeah, so basically anytime you've got a contact sport, right, you've got a risk where a child bangs into another child and or bangs into a play structure, right, or a court structure or something like that. Um, what about what about playgrounds? I mean, I think, you know, I see kids in clinic here or there for injuries and concussion injuries on the playground. In fact, I saw someone even just this past week who'd had a concussion on the playground. Talk about where you, what are the forces that happen in the brain that cause a concussion and how, like, what kind of, what do you have to do to your head to have a concussion happen? Well, it's very... I mean, it's very variable, right? I've had kids that have been in a crash where obviously there's big forces there that are transmitted to their brain. 
and are fine. Don't have any concussion symptoms after. And yeah. I've also had kids that trip, you know, on the playground and fall and hit their head, and they have symptoms. Or, for instance, a kid throws a stick up in the air and hits them in the head, and they have symptoms. So it's, it's hard to know how much force is necessarily needed for a concussion. Yeah. And do you think that our awareness, because I think parents know more and more about concussion now than we did even when I started practice 10 years ago. I mean, I think because of the national issues, the conversations change. Do you think it's important that these concussions are documented in kids' medical charts? I mean, is the tally of the number of concussions really something a parent should be up on as well? Well, I definitely think they need to be identified and that it's good to have in your mind how many concussions a kid has had, right? Because once you've had one concussion, you are at risk for having more concussions. And why, tell, explain why that is. Yeah, and so that um, so there's several things that have been um, thought about. One of them is that your brain is more sensitive after a concussion because of the, train, the tra- uh, change in your brain's um, metabolism or in the brain chemicals. Yeah, and that, let me interrupt you because one of the things we were looking at is a blog post I've written mm-hmm. in partnership with one of the nurse practitioners at Seattle Children's around, you know, what is a concussion? Well, concussion happens after the brain that is like floating in your skull, right, has a big enough velocity change in injury where it gets slammed against the inside of the skull. And after that, we think there are biochemical, literally at the cellular level, changes that happen in the, what are called neurons, the brain cells inside your brain. So there are things like sodium, potassium, potassium, chloride, water that moves from cell to cell and in and out of these cells. And after concussion, we know those change, right? Yes. And, and one of the things Dr. Swanson was telling me right before we started recording was that we used to think, oh, these are transient changes, meaning that these kids bang their heads. Sometimes, to your point, they have symptoms. Sometimes they don't. Um, and as those cellular changes are kind of normalizing and going back to normal, we used to think kind of when symptoms are resolved, probably the brain changes result, but you were saying that that research is really unfolding and is perhaps different. Yeah. So I think there's more and more studies are coming out and we're learning new things about concussion every day, but there's been a few studies coming out about um, long-term changes when they do neural psych testing or looking at how well a child can think, yep. um, as well as looking at um, new kinds of imaging that are showing changes in the white matter tracks or the tracks that go from kind of the back of the brain up to the front of the brain. Some information um, that's carried through those tracks is vision, which we'll talk about too, and concussion. Um, And so they are finding changes even after a single concussion or even after a single season of contact sports in those white matter tracks. Yeah, so that's really important. So that, so those changes are happening after children play contact sports, not even after an identified concussion happens, meaning yes. that, so white, tra- white track, that just means the kind of cells and actually what they look like on MRI and CT scan. But the kind of different cells that are in the brain, those tracks, so kind of how your brain is communicating with itself, that you can see injury, frankly, right, to those yeah. tracks, even after just participation. So that's maybe okay in some ways, right? That most kids will tolerate activity and involvement in sports. Um, but the, the going back to the original question, the number of concussions. So that, yeah. so is there a cutoff that parents should know about? So you know, if I've got a ten-year-old and he's already had two concussions, what does that mean? Or if I have a fifteen-year-old and he's had five, I mean, do you as a rehab doctor make different recommendations on sports involvement based on those numbers? So it's solely on the number of concussion. It really depends on when the concussion happened. So if it was spread out with years in between concussions versus they had three in a single season of sport or they've had five in a year, that to me is more concerning than a kid that had one concussion when they were five, another one when they were 15, and then are coming back with a third Mm. one when they're 21. So let's talk about those numbers, though. So the numbers of three in a season or three in a six-month period, is that what you said, and Mm -hmm. five in a year, Mm -hmm. where do those numbers come? Are those data-backed? Those are just ones that I was saying. Those aren't data-backed. So those are just more... 
It depends. So when I get really concerned is when a kid has had several concussions in a short amount of time. Okay. They have not gotten back to themselves in between. Like, they're still having symptoms when they had another concussion. Um, Or they're having um, concussions with less and less force. So maybe it did take, you know, a tackle to get their their first concussion. And their second one was they got knocked a little bit, got a bump and just a bump to the head. And then the third ones, they kind of brush up against the door. The ones where they're less and less force, those are more and more concerning to me. And and. So that makes sense, right? So I guess, you know, just to summarize that, what I'd say is that it's taking less injury to provoke a child to have these uncomfortable Mm -hmm. symptoms, which is saying to you, there's probably biochemical at the cellular level changes in the brain that's then presenting with these symptoms, and it's taking less and less to cause it, meaning that it's almost like the brain's irritable. Right, and more sensitive and susceptible to the injury. So what do you do for a child? If If a mom or dad is listening to this and they're thinking, wait, my kid's had three concussions this season. Is it? Is there any data to suggest? Okay, well, we should take a season off, or we should take a year off, or we should wait till he's she or he is thirteen to return to play. I mean, is there anything that can guide us on that? So I always talk to families about going as long as possible in between concussions. And so if your kid has had, I wouldn't even say like three concussions in a season, but even having this discussion after two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the benefit to your kid to going back for the season and what's the risk? And so those are conversations we have all the time in clinic. Yeah. Um, and most of the time, and it depends on the kid. If the kid is having symptoms that are lasting a long time, usually the family's already made that decision. They've already kind of seen the impact. And so they have decided, yep, we've had symptoms and we've been struggling with this. So we're just going to stop. Most of the time, I don't have to, you know, make that decision for them. Yeah. Um, because they're so strong as an advocate to say, I'm holding yep. off. Yep. Yeah, they've kind of seen yeah. what a concussion Well, I think parents are really scared, you know, yeah. and I think the NFL stories and the football stories have just raised a level, you know, and the autopsy information that we've mm-hmm. seen in the media has come through. So back to our original question, which was, how do we know a child is concussed, right? So they've had an, either an injury or a fall, and then they're, they have symptoms. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the bottom line, too, that we talked about before we started recording was parents should always go in to see their pediatrician or family doc after any concern for this, not just to document, but to get some understanding and to get a physical exam. So let's talk about what should a parent know to expect and almost demand when going in to see a healthcare provider after concern for a possible concussion. Yeah, so one of the things that the provider's gonna talk to you is, was it a concussion, right? So they're Mm -hmm. gonna talk to you about how the injury happened, what symptoms happened after, um, any problems, that were maybe happening before that could complicate kind of recovery. So things like problems with learning, problems with um, mood symptoms or headaches. Those are some things that we kind of we see after concussion um, as well. And then they're going to do a full physical exam. And the most important thing is an, a neurologic exam or how well your um, child is able to move. And parts of that exam that we look really closely at are vision, how well your um, child can track an object, um, what their balance looks like, because we very commonly see balance problems afterwards, which if you have that and you have a kid that goes back to play early and their balance is off or already sets them up for a concussion. Yeah, for just falling another, and having yeah, another, another injury. injury. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're going to document all those. And they're also going to look for things that might be concerning 
um, that would cause them to want to get a scan, right? Because we don't automatically scan every kid with a concussion. Yeah, so that's one of the things we were saying, yeah. too, that a lot of people think that if a loss of consciousness happens or if a child has a concussion or has, you know, sea stars, blacks out, has really strong, you know, headache, confusion, difficulty seeing, mm-hmm. difficulty concentrating, that they, they need or, quote, unquote, deserve a CT scan. And how often is it that kids need a CT scan in, in your understanding? So usually it's, it's pretty apparent within the first few hours whether the child is going to need a scan because what you're looking for when you get a CT scan is a head bleed, right? You can't see a concussion on a CT or an, even an MRI. Yeah, super important sound boy. Right, like yeah. you can't see a concussion on a CT scan or an MRI. And that's because, remember, a concussion is a constellation of symptoms after an injury and it's a chemical change at the cellular level that you don't see. So when a clinician's ordering a CT or even an MR, but usually a CT scan, they're really looking for an additional injury to concussion, not just concussion. Right, yeah. exactly. And so usually that's in the first few hours, and that would be things like a rapidly worsening headache. Um, if there's, you know, the kid is throwing up repeatedly, um, significant balance issues like not just a little bit wobbly but can't walk, weakness um, on one side of the body. Um, and so those are things that would automatically say that the kid needs a CT Yeah, scan. so a child is really either increasingly getting worse mm-hmm. after an injury and or has such disability they can't function, right? Mm-hmm. That's when a family would expect a CT scan. All the other conditions where kids are confused, strong headache, um, hard to focus, hard to see, maybe even irritable, often don't rule in to need a CT scan. So not expecting a CT might be part of the norm for mm-hmm. some kids after a concussion. What else should the pediatrician be doing besides that physical exam, um, you know, defining if it was a concussion or not, and deciding on, you know, radiological imaging. Right. And then giving um, basically family guidance on how to help their kid manage these symptoms and then obviously to get them back on track. But most kids, if they're seen initially for concussion, they likely will need to be seen again. Can can you explain that for families to just kind of have that set up as they come in to go see a doc? Yep. Because their um, recovery is so fast, you need to be able to change, you know, their um, accommodations for school, which we'll talk about some of those, um, you need to be able to monitor their symptoms. Um, and then finally, when it's time for them to, you know, have that discussion of going back to play, you need to be able to, um, see your pediatrician and make sure that things are in place for that to happen. Yeah. So there are some, so just so you know, so you'll go in to see a doc to get a diagnosis and understand, has your child been concussed? You'll consider the possibility of testing like a CT scan, which is pretty unusual and rare in the case of concussion. And then you should always expect at least one or more visits thereafter. Sometimes that's for things in advance, like concussion center, like we have at Seattle Children's, where you do extensive neuropsychological testing, rehabilitation, and some other things. But sometimes it's just with your general pediatrician, nurse practitioner, or family doc to be cleared back to return. Because if your child shows up at the pediatrician's office symptomatic, still having vision problems, still having balance problems, learning problems, or and or headache, or signs on their physical exam, they're, they're not ready to, that's not the last visit. They're always going to need to be seen again once all those symptoms basically go away. And to your point, we don't know which kids will recover really quickly, right, and which co- kids will take a long time. Is there anything predictive that families should think on in that? Are there some kids that you kind of expect yeah, to get better so, faster? So there, if you look at large groups of kids, and then we've kind of talked about every kid is different, but if you look yeah. at large groups of kids, there's some kids that do take a little bit longer to recover, so younger kids. Hmm. Um, most of the data that we have is on older teens and adults, and they tend to not take as long as, you know, say, like a 5-year-old or school-age child. Yeah. Um, also, kids that had um, issues with migraines, grains before, headaches, um, if, 
a kid had a problem with learning or with mood symptoms, those kids tend to take a little bit longer for their symptoms to resolve. Hmm. So if your kids had those diagnoses and or is younger, so five or even mm-hmm. younger, that you may take a longer time to get back to just baseline and normal. Exactly. Okay. So you've been in to see a pediatrician and or family doc or a specialist, and you now know your child's been concussed. And so we want to talk a little bit about the return back to learning in school, the return back to sports and play, um, you know, and then also kind of how parents, you know, how parents need to kind of watch, track their kids, and then what they should be expecting from the care team and the system to help kids really thrive so that symptoms are not prolonged and, and that we do the right thing. And I'll tell you, we were talking right before we started to record this, that I feel uneasy about this as a pediatrician because the data keeps changing and the guidelines and recommendations keep changing. So, you know, we went through a period 10 years ago or so where we were talking really specifically about brain rest and what that meant literally. I remember describing it to families. I'm like, in an ideal world after a concussion, we'd throw your kid in a room that had like no light, no sound, nothing exciting and nothing going on. And we'd have them there like in like a bubble until they had no symptoms. And you were schooling me today that that's no longer what we believe is best for kids. That's true. So it's Um, kind of a combination. It is. It's really about, I think, pacing kids back. So you can either take a kid and do exactly what you did, kind of isolate them in this little bubble where there's, Uh like, no sound, no light, anything like that. No cell phone. Exactly. Um, But then what they were finding was that it was throwing off kids' sleep cycles. You know, they were kind of feeling more socially isolated, which can lead to mood symptoms, trouble getting back into school. Mm -hmm. And then, but the other you know, extreme is not good either, where they just get pushed back into all their activities, pushed straight back into school. So it's really helping kids manage their symptoms and pacing them back to their activities into school. So if your child goes and sees a pediatrician, is symptomatic. So let's say is having, on their neurologic exam, maybe they had balance problems. Maybe their eyes weren't working as well. Maybe the pediatrician really, you know, the child was describing a feeling of, I often hear about dizziness. Mm -hmm. I, of course, often hear about headaches. And often hear about kind of this fuzzy confusion, I guess, is how I describe it, where kids are like, I don't know, it just doesn't seem right. Like they sit in class and they just can't track or follow what's going on. They just feel like fuzzy. So what's the approach? I mean, and we know... Every child's different, but what's the approach that a, a parent can take on? How do they know when it's okay to send them to school? So I would say to a point where they can actually be in an environment um, that would be like school with a little bit of commotion, um, with you know lights right. on, things like that. Yeah. Um, and then comfortably, you mean? Do they need to be symptom free in that environment? They do not need to be symptom free. But what you need to do is help them be able to manage their symptoms in that environment. So things that we talk about are going back to school, maybe not for the you know full day, but going back for a half day. Um, and we talk a lot about, especially if a kid is having symptoms with thinking or with reading and things like that, doing something called passive learning, which to me means that they are there and they are in school basically to be a little sponge, to be able to get used to the noise and the lights and the commotion of having other kids around them. Um, but not reading or writing. And not having to perform. Right. And then in that situation, too, because even just being around a lot of other loud kids can trigger uh-huh. some of your symptoms, yeah. needing some um, modifications at school. So things like when my head starts getting worse, I get to take a break. I get to take a five to ten minute break. If I need to step out and come back in um, once my symptoms are better, that's fine. And, you know, uh-huh. 
giving the child and the teacher kind of this written documentation that that's okay, right? Yeah, and we do that as pediatricians. So parents should know, like, ask for specific written documentation that you need to value what Dr. Swanson's advising here, which is this is a gradual, customized plan that you're going to make for your own child that maybe they don't have to be all the way symptom-free, but they need to go and experience the situation. And if an hour in, they feel awful, they feel dizzy, their headache rages, something, then that's when they pull out, and then you slow that down. And then once they can kind of tolerate the experience, you expand it as your child recovers from that experience. Exactly. And so when when I make guidelines, for instance, for my patients, I make the best basically educated guess based on what other Mm -hmm. kids have tolerated and what I think they're going to tolerate. Mm -hmm. But that needs to be adjusted based on the child. So if the kid goes back and after an hour they're having symptoms and they need to leave and go lay down at the nurses for a little bit before they can come back, that's that's okay. So parents are going to have to kind of listen and check in with their child throughout that time, right? As is potentially the pediatrician or whoever, or even a rehab specialist who's ever advising them um, throughout that time. So I'd, I'd say to parents, don't hesitate to keep checking in with a care team. If you're concerned that your child's symptoms a, are not improving or your child you think may be going back too quickly, or maybe you even feel like your child's going back too slowly. I mean, that's not usually the problem I see. But to your point, we don't think any longer that being in that total brain rest living in a bubble actually serves a child. And the the reason being, to Dr. Swanson's point, is that it probably just shifts and changes the problems. So let's talk about return to sports play because this is the the pithy one, right? I mean, sometimes I feel like kids lie to me in clinic about how they feel. I don't know, I wanna hear what you think about that. I mean, because they wanna get back so fast, they don't even tell me how they're really feeling. But let's go over how we know, and then we'll talk about lying, but let's talk about how we know how to get a child back into sports and when and how to do that. Okay, so to be able to start, um, you know, return to play, which there's um, kind of a stepwise way to get back into sports, number one, the kid has to be symptom-free. So I make them say, are you 100% yourself, right? Yep. And so if they say yes, then I go to my neurologic exam. Is my exam totally normal? My Are they now tracking fine? Are Is their balance fine? Is their thinking fine? All those things. Can we go back for a second? So how long do they need to be symptom-free before they should come back and see you? So Can it be like a day and then they're symptom-free? Or do you wait three, five, seven days? So to me, again, it kind of depends. If it yeah. was a kid that their symptoms were better within 24 hours and now they're you know, a couple days out, then I'm fine with talking about this gradual return to play. Okay. If they've been having symptoms for months and they've had one day of being symptom-free, yeah. I'm not ready to talk about return to play. Yeah, okay. So it depends on the duration. Yeah. And, um, and, and does it depend on the injury at all, or is it really symptom-based? To me, it's really symptom-based unless there are other associated injuries. So if they, for instance, had a skull fracture, right? Mm-hmm. Or, for instance, they actually had a CT with findings on it, um, that kind of takes them out of the concussion category, mm-hmm. that's a different conversation. Okay. And so when you're, so let's go back. So you're saying they have to have no symptoms probably for at least a few days, but if it's been a long, long, long protracted course, it might be a week or more. And then they have to have a normal neurologic exam. What else? They have to be off medicines that could be covering up their symptoms. So things even as simple as ibuprofen or Tylenol. Okay. So no meds, normal neurologic exam, totally symptom-free. Then you decide, okay, we're going to let you go back to hockey or we're going to let you go back to football. We're going to let you go back to cheer. We're going to let you go back to soccer practice. Then how do parents know how to do that? What's the guidelines with return to play? So there are these return to play protocols. It's basically you start with something as simple as walking and jogging and you're looking for, you know, does this provoke symptoms? Because a lot of 
times with concussions that kids can be fine at rest, but once they start thinking or running or things like that, they can have symptoms come back. And so if you're devising a return to play where you kind of have a graduated or gradual return and a child goes and you say, okay, well, you can sit and watch practice today. Then tomorrow you can go and you can do the warm-up. Then the next day you can do the warm-up and do the first activity. If they do the first activity and they start to get a headache or feel dizzy, do they just stop immediately and restart over? Or what, what's the next guy? They, they definitely stop immediately. Okay. And then they have to have 20 free, 24 hours of being symptom-free again. And then they start at the beginning again, yeah? Um, they start at the last place where they were symptom-free. Yeah. So if they got a little like bit that. into it and then say during you know drills or something like that, right. they got they had a symptom. They have to wait 24 hours, be completely back, 100% recovered, yep. and then they can start at the step where they were symptom-free. Okay, great. And then they kind of get back on this gradual protocol. Now, you want coaches to be informed of this schedule. You want school teachers to be informed of the schedule. And, of course, parents, parents want to be informed. Athletic trainers. Yep. And trainers, everyone. So sometimes I recommend that parents make sure the plan's written out by the pediatrician, and you just have them make a bunch of copies or do it yourself. They do, and there's there are some protocols that are more used, and so um, on Heads Up CDC, they do have a return to play um, protocol. The um, American Academy. Academy of Pediatrics has one. And so parents can find ones. these too. So, so your pediatrician can likely find them. So heads up, you can just Google heads up space CDC and you'll find a whole website that's got links for doctors, it's got links for parents, it's got links for coaches and trainers and it has these protocols that you can literally print out and fill out yourself. Um, and then the American Academy of Pediatrics has guidelines that you can read both on healthychildren.org and you can also read about it at the American Academy of Pediatrics.org and you just search concussion, return to play type guidelines that way. Exactly. So as we close out, let's talk a little bit about, so just know each child's going to have an individual plan. And when their symptoms come back as they're returning, you just have to slow things down and restart. And can you summarize why? Like, why do we not want kids who might be lying to us, which you can get to that, but who might be lying to us about symptoms and or who have had multiple concussions? Why do we want to really make sure that they don't overdo it? There's a couple of reasons. So the first one is that um, we know that if a kid gets a concussion or gets another hit to the head while they still have a concussion, a lot of times their symptoms get worse. Mm -hmm. They tend to last longer. And then the kids I really worry about are the kids that have had several concussions in a very short amount of time um, and have not been able to recover in between. Yeah, and then we had talked about in the first podcast, but that's just kind of like an irritable brain, right? Mm -hmm. That if it's less force that causes them to keep being concussed, it means the brain, the biochemically at the cellular level is just not back to normal. And so you're like, I mean, you can imagine it's like, it's like cracking an egg a little bit and then cracking it again and cracking it. Every time you crack it, just it's going to spout open so much earlier. So you just don't want to take something that's a little fragile um, and, and cause more injury. You know, I think um, for parents and families who are trying to get back to play, um, what, if you were thinking about what, what's the, what are the most common mistakes that happen? Like, what can we avoid and be smarter about? So I think sometimes going back too soon. Um, uh -huh. so, so I've seen occasionally a kid that has gone back while they were still symptomatic mm -hmm. um, and gotten another concussion, mm -hmm. which... Um, that maybe do a couple of things. Maybe that we just didn't pick up on some vision issues or their balance was off. But if you have a concussion because of those issues with reaction time or balance and stuff like that, if you have not gotten back to baseline, that does set you up um, to be at risk for another hit to your head. Yep. And what other, what other mistakes do parents make? Um, not so much with return to play, but sometimes with return to school, mm -hmm. um, not having those accommodations in place for the kid and pushing mm -hmm. them right back into school um, and then wondering, you know, why their headaches are so much worse or why their symptoms got worse mm -hmm. when they've gone back. The other thing I see, too, is even if kids are getting this gradual return to school, once they're back in school and they look pretty normal, they're doing pretty well, 
um, all of a sudden they're handed all this makeup homework yes. that they yeah. had missed, yeah. and that can be a substantial amount. So now they're doing even more schoolwork than they were doing pre-injury, yeah. and sometimes we will see a spike in symptoms at that point. Yeah, and I think that's the hard thing about this. We were saying you, you can't see a concussion on a CT scan. You can't typically see a concussion looking at a kid either, and I think these kids look normal, and I think people sometimes will write this off as laziness or histrionics or you know kind of emotional reactions and stuff, and I think parents and kids can work together with their pediatrician to be really strong advocates to say, you know, you can't see this, but we want to protect this child's brain and learning and sports activity and life by making sure we do this right. So I'm just going to say out loud to parents, like you be a squeaky wheel if you feel like you're getting pushback and don't ever hesitate to use specialists in rehab medicine or your pediatrician or family doc to back you up and help you because there's just no question that this stuff matters. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Swanson. Of course. <laughs> um, okay, this is, I'd say live, but it's not going to be live, from Alabama. Um, and thanks for listening to this kind of return back to play. Don't hesitate to look at resources on the blog, Seattle Mama Doc, but also, again, just Google Heads Up CDC and or look at the American Academy of Pediatrics for resources you can use for your kids, too. Parenting is a high-stakes job, and the good news is you've got this. Thanks for listening. The Seattle Mama Doc podcast episodes air every single week. I'm always interested in hearing what you have to say, what was helpful, and what you want to learn more about. Reach out to me on Twitter at Seattle Mama Doc, on my Facebook, Seattle Mama Doc, or at seattlemamadoc.com. Tell me what you want to learn. Tell me if you want to join me and point me to experts you'd love to learn more from.